Good morning. Welcome to the Patriot Radio News Hour. I'm your substitute teacher, Glenn Biddle, legal lawful constitutional tender, economics and history with attitude. 800-951-0592, allamericangold.com. That's how you get a hold of us. But today you're going to be getting a hold of Arlene in the office because Joe is feeling a little bit under the weather. He gave me a call this morning. He said, hey, I'm really feeling bad. Can you cover for me today? I'm like, absolutely, no problem. So, you know, I get it. His kid, his younger son went back to school this week. And, and as a teacher, I totally get this. Schools are a germ incubator those first couple weeks. And I think his son wasn't feeling so hot when he came over from school yesterday. And then Joe wasn't feeling good. So I think Joe kind of picked that up from his son. So he's kind of under the weather. And Obviously, the stress level for him is probably rising pretty much because his oldest son's getting ready to go to college, and and that's tough to see your son or any child go off to college like that. And and Mrs. Double is responsible for taking him up there to to uh, Chicago, so I'm sure they've got their hands full there. So I totally get that. Uh, but this kind of worked out exactly like a real world school situation will work out. When the when the teacher gets sick, they got to call in the substitute. So here I am. I'm the substitute teacher. Now look, I know how substitute teachers go, and I'm watching all of you out there in the audience right now. If you don't do your homework or you're not paying attention to class, I'm going to take your name down and I'm going to leave it for Joe, and he's going to have to deal with you on Friday when he comes back. And I'll also be here Friday too with our fake news segment. But I'm also here tomorrow because Joe has some. Uh, errands he has to run and i'm tomorrow i'm going to talk about the atomic bomb which is going to be really fun because i uh, well not it's historically but uh to talk about it you know but we're going to talk about exactly how that happened and the reaction to it and you know why that was such an impact on the war i know the phyllis schlafly uh update the other day was all about the atomic bomb so we're going to really dive deep into that um now like I said, Arlene's in today. Uh, you can contact her at 800-951-0592. We've got a great special today. We can get $5 Liberties at $340. And we have still have the rolls of silver buffalo rounds at $340 a roll. And that, that $5 Liberty coin, that's a great fractional material to have. Uh, you know, very good to have if you're in a barter situation. Uh, much easier to to, to get rid of if you have to do like a, a bartering type thing with, as opposed to like an ounce coin. So that's our special today. We'll get back to that later. So I wanted to kind of talk to you a little bit. Now, today is National Dollar Day, National Dollar Day. Now, I deal with middle school kids all the time, so you have to keep things lively and upbeat. So like a couple weeks ago, it was National Don't Step on a Bee Day, and then last week it was National Ice Cream Sandwich Day, which I celebrated at lunch and dinner, and I'm the last person that needs to eat two ice cream sandwiches, but I just had to do it. Uh, yesterday was National Purple Heart Day, which is actually very, very, very serious and reverent. You know, so we definitely want to honor those people who have have you know literally taken a bullet for our country. Okay, but today's National Dollar Day, and you can go a, a lot of different ways on this one. Uh, I, I'm reading off the website. The, you know, National Calendar Day. So today's National Dollar Day. August 8th commemorates the day that Congress established the U.S. monetary system in 1786. It's National Dollar Day with an exclamation point behind it. Yay. Okay, the first U.S. dollar bill wasn't printed until 1862, and it didn't bear the image of George Washington either. Salmon P. Chase, President Lincoln's Secretary of the Treasury, was featured on the first greenback. Now it says, how do you observe today? Well, you can spend or save a dollar depending on your preference, and then use hashtag National Dollar Day to post on social media. Well, you know what? We're not going to do that because I hate hashtag activism. If you really want to stir some things up on social media, 
go on there and ask your friends, and they're going to have to look it up because they probably don't know, how much buying power does that dollar still have today? And just take it back to 1913, it's the creation of the Fed. Now, you know from watch, listening to this show and watching the, listening and going onto the website and looking at the chart, that the dollar has lost probably somewhere between 96 to 98% of its buying power. Remember, we talked about how the Fed puts 2% inflation on every year. So in 10 years, just what that public school math shows talks about all the time, in 10 years, we're going to lose 20% more of our buying power. Now, look at Venezuela. They are, they are completely off the charts on their on their the, you know their inflation. It's it's crazy. It's Weimar Republic inflation down there. That's where they literally in Germany they were sweeping the money down the streets, burning it in their fireplaces, and putting it on the walls wallpaper. It's almost useless. Actually, the the uh, the paper had more value, and probably the ink on it had more value than the actual currency back then. All right, so let's keep talking now. Also, now today is this is a big day for me. Okay. Uh, uh, we're going to take care of you, though. No worries. Uh, on a personal note, today I'm celebrating my 31st wedding anniversary, and I don't know how my wife has put up with me for so long, and she deserves a medal. Now, when we were first married, I went on active duty, and she had another semester to go to a college, and we finally got together at, at of all places, Fort Knox, Kentucky. Now, when you say Fort Knox, Kentucky, you think of the vault, and and you know, is the gold there? Is the gold not there? You know, I've watched every documentary you can watch on on Fort Knox. Uh, but while we were there, we actually went on a trip up to Louisville, Kentucky. And on the way up there, we were driving on the road up to Louisville, and I saw this Army half track with a quad fifty in the back of it. And I did. We just pulled into this place, like let's go check this out. And it was very cool because we actually turned into a place called the Knob Creek Gun Range. Now, if you know anything about guns, or and like I'm a gun guy. Okay, but this place was, is a mecca for full-auto shooting. Okay, There was actually a show on the History Channel, I believe, about Knob Creek gun range. So we stopped in there, and, and there were just full-auto weapons everywhere. It was just a really cool place. Okay, So that was just one of the things. And then of all places, I got sent to Fort Lewis, Washington. And not two weeks there, I was sent to Yellowstone National Park to fight forest fires. And you know, we have the raging fires in California. I'm going to talk about them in the next segment. And I got back not two weeks later... And I was sent to Fort Irwin, California to go into the desert. Now, on the flip side, next side of the break, we're going to talk about the wildfires in California and how they relate to uh, what we're doing. And we'll see you next on the next flip side. Oh, Ramon's treating me special today with my favorite bump music. I appreciate it. Thank you, Ramon. Now, getting back to what I was talking about, I, I hats off to my wife because she has put up with so much in the 31 years that we've been married. I was talking about how I got, you know, I wasn't at Fort Lewis two weeks, Fort Lewis, Washington, and got sent to Yellowstone National Park to fight forest fires. And while we were there, we were digging hand line, we were putting out hot spots, we were you know, clearing brush. We were doing all sorts of things to help the the professional firefighters, the real firefighters, to go out and do their jobs. Uh, and, and that was just amazing. Uh, there were some farmers that came in from Idaho that brought in irrigation equipment, and they put them all around the Old Faithful Lodge. And they pumped water for about two or three days to try to stop this fire. And, then, and the fire has a mind of its own when it's ready to go. It creates its own wind. It's just very devastating. It came down a hill towards the lodge and it literally melted the irrigation system and luckily it jumped Old Faithful Lodge 
and just moved on. And eventually, the only thing that put out those forest fires was the fall snows, which settled the park down. Now, the Forest Service had a policy back then called let it burn, and that was the that was the policy. And then they when they got out of hand, they figured, well, I guess we have to go in and stop this because they were so deadly and dangerous. Okay, um, so getting back, you know, I, I so I could, after I got back from from far fighting forest fires, I got sent to Fort Irwin, California. That's the National Training Center for a couple months of desert training, and those deployments went on and on and on for three years. We were apart. I literally was in my sleeping bag, Army sleeping bag, more than I was in my own bed for those three years that I was on active duty. And, you know, after after that, when I, I became a police officer, and then I volunteered for every crazy job that they had, SWAT team, bicycle patrol, firearms instructor. So my wife's put up with a lot. Now we're on the same schedule because we're both teachers. So it's actually pretty good. So thanks to her, I can't believe she's put up with me for 31 years. All right, so take a look at the markets real quick. Nothing really major today is going on. The S&P is only down uh, less than a dollar. The Nasdaq's down less than a dollar. Dow Jones is down 57 points. The Nikkei is, up, or is down 18 points. The Hong Kong market's up 110. The Shanghai's down 34. Oil is down $2.65 at 66.52. Hopefully that'll hit to the pumps. It always takes a while. It takes a lot longer to hit the pumps when it goes down than when it goes up. And gold is down about 60 cents at 12.1770. And silver is flat right now at 15.37. And silver at that price is always a buying opportunity. So you got to get on that silver rounds. Give Arlene a call at 800-951-0592. You know, those are really cool things to have. Uh, as far as if you just want to stack silver, those silver rounds are great uh, to have. They're very good. And also this $5 Liberty is $340. Excellent things to have. Now, I want to talk to you about the California wildfires. Um, I'm, I'm pulling up an article here uh, from the Daily Signal, and then the headline says, Big Government and Environmentalists Are Causing Massive Fires in Western States. It's also just bad luck. I think a, a flat tire caused that big Redding fire. It's, it's very bad, okay? So I want to read this to you. The massive fires that took the lives of over 40 people in California were not the only devastating wildfires of, as of late. Utah, Montana, and other states have been hit by destructive infernos that have left death and widespread property damage in their wake. Forest fires, what firefighters call wildfires, are undoubtedly part of nature and can never be stopped entirely, but the measurable uptick in extraordinarily large fires is a trend that is causing intolerable amounts of damage. Forest management policy has become calcified and centralized over the last half century, but there are some serious ideas that can turn things around. Since the 1970s, the number of forest fires in the U.S. has remained fairly constant, but there's been a significant uptick in the size of these blazes. The average wildfire is now twice the size of fires 40 years ago. Some have tried to pin the blame on climate change, but as a 2015 Reason Foundation study noted, climactic factors like higher temperatures and increased droughts cannot explain the pattern of fires observed over the past century. While it is possible that climate change has played a role in increasing the size of fires, the primary cause seems to be forest management practices, which have changed several times over the course of the past 200 years, the study said. The U.S. Forest Service, which manages most of America's wilderness, made some big changes in the 70s that many say have led to our modern predicament. The selective clearing of forests in which only certain trees are removed had been highly successful in the past, but perverse incentives for the agency made clear cutting or uniformly chopping down trees more common in the 1950s. This led to a, black, a backlash of lawsuits, environmentalist attacks, and unfortunately, 
more centralization of Washington for the Forest Service. In 1976, Congress tried to resolve the debate by instituting a comprehensive forest planning process. Uh, the resulting plans proved to be a costly mistake. The agency spent more than a billion dollars planning the national forest, but plans were then often based on fabricated data, and they did not resolve any debate. Nearly half a century of bureaucratic centralization and environmentalist initiatives have left forests overgrown, vulnerable to fire, and dangerous to individual property owners and the economies of many states. California State Senator Mike McGuire, a Democrat, estimated that the recent fires may have caused over $3 billion in damages to his state. California's fires have gathered most of the media attention, but other western states have also suffered immensely from out-of-the-control wildland fires in the past few years. Last year alone, large wildfires hit nine states, including California, Colorado, Idaho, Montana, Nevada, Oregon, Utah, Washington, and Wyoming, according to the Washington Post. Fires nationwide have consumed about 8 million acres and about 12,550 square miles, larger than the size of Maryland since January 1, the Post reported. A large fire near the town of Bryan Head, Utah, burned 13 homes and over 93 square miles of land. Utah, Utah State Representative Mike Noel, a Republican along with other Utah legislators and officials, made a short video in October explaining how Bettis forest management could have prevented what became the most expensive fire fire in state history. In the video, they say the buildup of dead trees caused what should have been a small brush fire to balloon into something much worse. The United States Forest Service and the Bureau of Land Management, like helpless giants, are constrained by a self-imposed web of bureaucratic rules and regulations that impede and stop proper management options that could reduce these large catastrophic fires. Now Congress is working on measures to stop the bleeding of an increasingly unmanageable problem. The House recently passed a bill that would allow more aggressive tree clearing and local collaborative organizations to have more control of public land. It would also redirect funds from fighting fires to preventing fires, correcting what has become a major budgetary imbalance over the past few decades. Fire expenditures have grown from less than 15% of the Forest Service budget in the early 1990s to about 50% today. Forest Service fire expenditures have increased from less than $1 billion in the late 1990s to $3.5 billion in 2016. What is clear is that, unlike the effects of many other natural disasters, there are proven ways such as aggressively limiting overgrowth and clearing dead wood to control the effects of wildfires and contain their damage. Okay, so that's just showing you that our government, as anything that government touches, is not very efficient, and because of lawsuits by environmentalists, now you'd think they would want the forest to be healthy, but what they've done is they've caused these wildfires to be even more catastrophic. Now, I do know that fire does tend, when, when things regrow, things regrow much better in 10 or 15 years. I've visited Mount St. Helens, and that place is an explosion of new life. You know, a lot of the fire, when the fire hits a, a uh, pine tree, a pine cone, it pops those seeds out, and then you get the, the regrowth. But if you're when people live closer and closer to these forests, then you have human interaction, and people's houses are burning. And I, I did a prepping show where I told people, you know, when I covered for Joe, that you need to be able to prep your yard. You know, can you put a fire break in your yard? What can you do? Can you install some sort of irrigation system? Can you wet your house down if you have a fire coming? You know, what can you do to be proactive to kind of stop these these major fires that that since humans are going out into nature even more and more and more and developing that they're going to run into contact with them. So I just wanted to bring that up. You know, I've done these forest fires before. I've been out there and helped fight them. Uh, there's only so much uh, the humans can do. Mother Nature starts these fires in a lot of cases with lightning strikes, 
and Mother Nature puts them out eventually when the snows come. And each year it seems it's worse and worse, and it's much ex- more expensive. I don't know if you've seen these amazing videos of these big jumbo jets coming in and dropping the fire retardant or the great big helicopters that are doing the, the, the water bucket drops. I mean, that is very, very expensive uh, for as far as resources go to try to contain and if you look at the at these um the news videos at night those firemen are just really really tired now i know when when i was there the forest service fed us very well we would come back after working a 12 or 14 hour day and they would give us all the steak we could eat all the potatoes we could eat all the salad we could eat they were just carving us up and giving us tons of protein because the next day we're going to be out there on those lines again working all day long and it is very very hard work and so uh, it's, it's also very dangerous work. Uh, we were driving to the the Old Faithful Lodge one day, and we had a professional firefighter that was with us. He was from the California Department of Forestry. And he told us, he says, look, if I look like I'm scared, then you be scared. And we, as we're driving towards Old Faithful Lodge, the fires were coming down the hill, and the, the smoke really wasn't even black. It was orange, and it was it was kind of – we were on a big school bus. And he's looking at us. He says, gentlemen – we might have to deploy our fire shelters, and that's basically a foil bag that you get into, and hopefully the fire will jump over top of you, and it will protect you just long enough that it will deflect the heat, reflect the heat. And uh, he told us that we were about a minute away from jumping into those fire shelters, and that was a pretty scary day. But uh, I've seen some terrible damage that were done. The wildlife, is it's very hard on them. You know, They either run out of the area or they're caught up in it, so it's very tragic. Okay, so I wanted to cover that because that, that's something that's happening in our country right now. Um, I want to kind of switch gears here to uh, the independence of the Federal Reserve. Um, now, I've, we've all heard that, that you know, a couple weeks ago, President Trump made a, a comment that he did not want to see rates rise. And he caught a lot of uh, flack over that because, oh, you're interfering with the Fed. You're interfering with the Fed. Well, that's nothing. That is nothing. When you look back in history, now my job as a history teacher is to take you back in time, and I, I've, I've gone over and over and over this about how, you know, if I want you to learn something from the present, I'll go back to the past and bring something into the present from the past that will get you to, you know, focus on what's happening today. So let's say that we're going to talk about how Trump is getting pilloried, basically, about what his comments about the Fed chairman. Okay, well, we can go back in time to 1965, you know, a year after uh, they, they took the silver out of the coinage, when LBJ assaulted a Fed chairman, okay, um, Ron, in his column today, Ron Paul mentions that those who insist the Fed functions with independence tend to forget or at least not bring up the numerous historical episodes in which the Fed did not en- en- exercise any such independence. As an example, Ron Paul mentions the time when President Lyndon Johnson actually summoned then-Fed chairman William McChesney Martin to Johnson's Texas ranch, where Johnson shoved him against the wall physically assaulting the Fed chairman is probably a greater threat to the Federal Reserve independence than questioning the Fed's policy on Twitter. And for those unfamiliar with the episode, uh, we need a little bit of historical context here. Johnson had pushed Kennedy's economic policies to their logical extreme. In 1964, he had delivered a powerful fiscal stimulus by signing tax cuts into laws, and he had proceeded to bully the Federal Reserve to keep interest rates as low as possible. When the Fed made a show of resistance in 1965, Johnson summoned William McChesney Martin, the Fed chairman, to his Texas ranch and physically shoved him around the living room, yelling in his face, boys are dying in Vietnam and Bill Martin doesn't care. This was the 1960s version of you are either with me or you're with the terrorists. 
of of course Johnson didn't stop at pushing around central the central banker. If the tax cuts and low interest rates caused inflationary pressure, Johnson believed he could deal with it more by bullying and manipulation. When aluminum makers raised prices in 1965, Johnson ordered up sales from the government's strategic stockpile to push the prices back down again. When copper companies raised prices, he fought by restricting exports of the metal and scrapping tariffs as to usher in more imports. The president battled uppity prices for household appliances, paper cartons, newsprint, men's underwear, women's hosiery, glass containers, cellulose, and air conditioners. When egg prices rose in 1966, he had the Surgeon General issue a warning on the hazards of cholesterol. In other words, Johnson was willing to apply pressure to the Fed through means other than making threats or engaging in physical assault. Johnson's manipulation of prices through strategic stockpiles illustrated that Johnson used a wide array of fiscal and industrial policies to get his way. It's entirely possible that in addition to demanding that the Fed keeps rates low, Johnson wanted to show Martin and other voting members of the Fed that Johnson had his own set of tools he could use to stimulate the economy as he saw fit. Politically speaking, Johnson might also have been showing the Fed he could provide a political cover by helping keep inflation low alongside the desired easy money policy employed by the Fed. Of course, a good economic economist would point out that using such methods constitutes playing with fire. But there's no reason to believe that Johnson was interested in good economic theory. He was likely only interested in short-term political gains that might be had from manipulative fiscal policy. And we all know how that goes. All right, we are halftime on a hump day Wednesday. See you on the other side. This is the Phyllis Schlafly Report, a daily look at the significant issues of our time from an experienced conservative perspective. Sponsored by Phyllis Schlafly Eagles, this broadcast continues the legacy of Phyllis Schlafly and stands against forces that mock traditional values, deny freedom of religion, slander America, and would redefine the family. Now the president of Phyllis Schlafly Eagles, Ed Martin. Conservatives should never lose focus of the important work that lies before us. Yet it is also important to look behind us and see how far we have come. One excellent example of this is the recent North Korea relations. In just one short year, President Trump has done the impossible. He brought the world's most isolated nation to the negotiating table. Not since the days of Ronald Reagan has a president brought the world back from the brink of a nuclear war, despite major pressure on all sides. This monumental Trump victory did not happen by accident. Let's consider how he did it. Just like with Reagan, the left pushed Trump to kowtow to the demands of a foreign bully. Many liberals wanted to see a repeat of the Iran deal disaster. Yet President Trump knew how to get a deal. Responding to North Korean aggression, Trump called dictator Kim Jong-un Little Rocket Man. Trump assured Kim that any nuclear strike against the U.S. would be met with fire and fury like the world has never seen. Trump faced endless criticism for this action and his words, but he stood firm. He also put sanctions on North Korea and got the U.N. to do the same. Finally, Kim capitulated. Kim came to us begging for a summit to take place so the pressure could be lifted. Graciously, Trump agreed to meet. When Kim started trying to act tough and insult our vice president, Trump made the inspired decision to call off the summit. Once again, Kim came begging for us to resume the summit, leaving us in a better bargaining position than ever before. We all know how that turned out. Trump met with Kim and made a historic deal to ease tensions on the Korean Peninsula. Despite endless negative press, threats, and insults, Trump held firm in his convictions and eventually won an unprecedented victory. 
As the conservative movement goes forward, we need to maintain the spirit President Trump displayed in the North Korea situation. Let us never forget the victories that are before us if we only stand strong and resist the pressure of the left. This has been the Phyllis Schlafly Report from Phyllis Schlafly Eagles. Do you like what you see at the Trump White House? Will President Trump continue to advance conservative ideals? At phyllisschlafly.com, you gain complete access to Phyllis Schlafly Eagles news updates and commentaries and can track our work on Capitol Hill. Go online often to phyllisschlafly.com. And thanks for listening to the Phyllis Schlafly Report. And Ramon's bringing us back in with the wreck of the Edmund Fitzgerald. That's eventually what's going to happen to this economy because of the crushing debt that we are in. And I, I was on with Joe the other day, and we were talking about the the you know quarter GDP, the four point one gross. And I brought up the comment to Joe. I said, "Look, how much did that four point one GDP cost us in the long run? How all that money we're spending?" Uh, and and I was using an old figure of one point two trillion in debt. It's actually gone up since then. You know, one point three, one point five, probably even more than that. Okay. Uh, when you look at when we have to borrow that money, that's the deficit, okay? And all those deficits add up to the national debt. I've, I've told you over and over again, you need to go to the U.S. debt clock. We have it on the website. Go take a look at it, and it's up in the top left-hand corner, and take a screenshot of it, and then just leave it on your desktop, and then come back in a month and bring up the debt clock and compare your screenshot to the, the live debt clock, and it'll blow your mind. You're like, oh my gosh, I can't believe we spent that much more money. Okay, and and then you take you can spend an hour on that debt clock, looking at all the numbers on there. And then there's a state debt clock, and there's a world debt clock. There's all sorts of different tools you can go on there. It's just amazing. Okay, but if you take a look at that money that we have to borrow this year, and I was just looking at the the Treasury auctions here uh, today, the ten year is two point nine seven, the thirty year is three point one. Jamie Dimon was saying the other day that we might have to go up to 5% to sell these T-bills. Like, There's a quote that says, what if we had a war and no one came? Well, what if we had a treasury auction and no one bothered to come in to, to uh, buy those T-bills? Okay, What's going to happen then? Uh, are we going to default? Are we just going to print it ourselves? I mean, we're, we're creating money out of thin air as it is anyway. But when you look at that debt that we're borrowing now, and you look at it 5, 10, 15, 20 years down the road, this short-term gain, short-term gain of 4.1 is going to cost us so much more in the long run, but no one cares about that. It's kicking that can down the road. Kick the can, can oh, it's okay, we, we have an election cycle coming up. We have to have a good economy. We need to keep the interest rates low. I get all that. And, and, and pragmatists and realists get that. But also, pragmatists and realists should also get that we have a huge, huge debt problem that it's almost off the charts hard to explain and wrap your head around when you look at the actual numbers of trillions of dollars and, and quadrillions of dollars it's going to end up being down the road. And, it, and who's paying for that? And going to be me. Okay, It might be me a little bit, but it's going to be my kids, my grandkids, my great-grandchildren. They're the ones that are going to be saddled with this debt. So we owe it. We owe it to the future generation to get a handle on this. And there's really no political will in D.C. right now to deal with this because they're all trying to get elected again. Oh, just get us elected and we'll take care of it. How many times have you heard that? It's absolutely ridiculous. Now, I tried to cover this recycling 
issue when I did the show for the five days when Joe was on vacation. I never got to it, but I'm doing it today because I want to talk about it because I had a, a very eye-opening experience the other day when I went to lunch with my daughter. Now, the, this whole plastic straw ban out in California, and I started up in Seattle, it was all originated because of some nine-year-old kid did a science project or a report for school and about how plastic straws hurt sea turtles. And the numbers were all wrong, but it's a nine-year-old kid, and everybody liked it. And, oh, that's so cute. And then Seattle, in its whacked-out leftist ways, latches onto this and passes the plastic straw ban. Well, the, the Internet is blown up with memes about little kids running down a beach with a little straw in their hand saying, I need this for my juice box, and a cop's behind them. You know, it's just exploded of all the memes you can see on on the Internet about this. But it, but it's making fun of, of a, a real problem that that is a problem, and there's only so much we can do about it. Now, this is out of the Scientific American. Now, it does have a little bit of a, a liberal bend to it at the end because it talks about, you know, obviously banning straws, but, but they actually treat this pretty fairly. Okay, I want to kind of start reading this to you. The only thing worse than being lied to is not knowing you're being lied to. It's true that plastic pollution is a huge problem of planetary proportions, and it's true we could all do more to reduce our plastic footprint. The lie is that the blame for plastic problem is wasteful consumers and that changing our individual habits will fix it. Recycling plastic is to saving the earth a falling skyscraper. You struggle to find a place to do it, and you feel pleased when you succeed. But your effort is wholly inadequate and distracts from the real problem of why the building is collapsing in the first place. The real problem is that single-use plastic, the very idea of producing plastic items like grocery bags, which we use for an average of 12 minutes but can persist in the environment for half a millennium, is an incredibly reckless abuse of technology. Encouraging individuals to recycle more will never solve the problem of a massive production of single-use plastic that should have been avoided in the first place. Now, getting back to my lunch with my daughter the other day, we went to Chick-fil-A, and I took a picture of my cup with the plastic lid and the straw sticking out, and I posted on Facebook. I said, oh, Claudia and I are having lunch at Chick-fil-A. Good thing we're not in California, spelled with a K, because we would probably be committing a felony with our plastic straws and our single-use plastic. But then I'm, I'm taking a look at my tray, and I, I see cardboard that the french fries came in. I see a foil wrapper that the sandwich came in. I see the, the, the tray liner that's paper. And all that's going into the trash can. And, and I look at it, and I, I say, Claudia, look, take a look at this. I said, look at all this, pla- this trash here that's, that's not going to be recycled that could be. And here it's, just, it's being thrown away. And wh- what do we do about that? And I, I said, I feel terrible about this. And she goes, yeah, I do too. I'm like, well, what do we do? They just can't throw the French fries on the on the tray and, and just throw the sandwich on there. I said they have to package it, obviously. But could there be a better way to do this? And I'm an avid recycler. I recycle everything I can possibly recycle. I, I've, I've just been brought up that way. I, I was a kid in the 70s, and the 80s, it's just the right thing to do. And I try to recycle everything. I probably recycle stuff that I shouldn't recycle. And there, there's now a backlash by countries like China and other third world countries that aren't accepting our recyclables anymore. And one of these issues, let's say you have a, a, a pizza box and there's oil in that cardboard. Well, if you try to recycle that cardboard, a lot of that cardboard now is being rejected at the recyclable end because they don't want it because it's dirty. And so where does all that stuff end up? It ends up in a landfill. So you think you're doing the right thing by recycling and then it turns up in a landfill anyway. Okay, now moving right along. 
As an ecologist and evolutionary biologist, this is the author, I have had a disturbing window into the accumulating literature on the hazards of plastic pollution. Scientists have long recognized that plastics biodegrade slowly, if at all, and pose multiple threats to wildlife through entanglement and consumption. More recent reports report dangers produced by absorption of toxic chemicals in the water and by plastic odors that mimic some species' natural food. Plastics also accumulate up the food chain, and studies now show that we are likely ingesting it ourselves in seafood. If we consumers are to blame, how is it possible that we fail to react when a study reports that there will be more plastic than fish in the oceans by 2050? I would argue that the simple answer is that, this is, that it's hard, and the reason why it is hard is an interesting history. Beginning in the 1950s, big beverage companies like Coca-Cola and Anheuser-Busch, along with Philip Morris and others, formed a nonprofit called Keep America Beautiful. Its mission is and was to educate and encourage environmental stewardship in the public. Joining forces with the Ad Council, the public service announcement geniuses behind Smokey the Bear and McCruff the Crime Dog, one of their first and most lasting impacts was bringing Litterbug into the American lexicon through their marketing campaigns against thoughtless individuals. Two gate, two decades up, and we'll pick this up on the other side. We're going to continue on with recycling. And it's not a liberal lefty issue, it's everybody's issue because it affects us every day. And we'll be back. And Ramon's bringing us back into Zero Dark Thirty bump music there. That's when the SEALs were going after bin Laden's compound. Uh, if you haven't seen that movie, you really need to see it. It's pretty intense. Okay, so we're talking about recycling, and I just want to put it out there. You know, I'm one of the most conservative, libertarian-leaning persons you can possibly get, but I am all about the environment. I, I believe in all types of renewable energy, solar power, wind power, geothermal. I believe in fossil fuels because there's, you, I, they haven't invented a 747 yet that can fly on solar or, or geothermal. So until they fix that, we have to use fossil fuels. I'm a big, I love nuclear energy as long as it's safe. Uh, I live very close to a nuclear power plant. In fact, they have uh, sensors all around here to, if there's ever a leak to warn us that, oh, here's the radiation coming. Uh, but, I mean, and I'm an avid recycler. I, I think it's the right thing to do. I just don't, I, I recycle newspaper, cardboard, plastic. Now, I have a unique way of recycling. I fill up plastic jugs and take them to the range and shoot at them and blow them up, and then I take them to the recycling center. And I just imagine a lot of times prisoners sort this stuff uh, and I imagine, what is this? What is going on here? Because my cardboard is like empty bullet boxes and plastic containers that the bullets came in, and then these blown up bottles. So I'm sure that that my recycling is a little bit weirder than other people's. But I, I recycle, and I think you should do it. But if it was easier for Americans to do, they would do it. My dad didn't recycle anything. I would go up there and I would try to help him out and do it, and he's like, ah, "I'm not doing that. Too much effort." And, and my my trash system that when they come here and I have recyclables on one side and my regular trash on the other and one of the neat ways of doing this and this is what I saw out in Seattle this was actually cool you got charged based on the amount of trash you threw away if you could recycle it was free but they would have they had literally had a, a scale on the trash truck and it, they would bill you on the amount of waste you you had for the trash and so it forced you to recycle and there's not it doesn't take that long to do. It really doesn't, as long as you're good about it. As long as you have a place to do it, and it's easy, you're going to do it. Okay, so I want to get back into this article. It's actually pretty good. Um, two decades later, their crying Indian public service announcement, I know everyone remembers that, if you're my age, would become hugely influential for the U.S. environmental movement. In the ad, a Native American man canoes up to a highway where a motorist tosses a bag of trash. 
The can- camera pans up to show a tear rolling down the man's cheek. By tapping into a shared national guilt for the history of mistreatment of Native Americans and the sins of, thro- of a throwaway society, the PSA became a powerful symbol to motivate behavioral, behavioral change. More recently, the Ad Council... Council and the Keep America Beautiful teams produced I Want to Be Recycled campaign, which urges consumers to imagine the reincarnation of shampoo bottles and boxes following the collection and processing of materials to remolding in the next generation of products. And if you listen to talk radio enough, you do hear those those ad uh, council bits. At face value, these efforts seem benevolent, but they also obscure the real problem, which is the role that corporate polluters play in the plastic problem. This clever misdirection has led journalist and author Heather Rogers to describe Keep America Beautiful as the first corporate greenwashing front, as it has helped shift the public focus to consumer recycling behavior and actively thwarted legislation that would increase extended producer responsibility for waste management. For example, back in 1953, Vermont passed a piece of legislation called the Beverage Container Law, which outlawed the sale of beverages in non-refillable containers. Single-use packaging was just being developed, and manufacturers were excited about the much bigger profit margins associated with selling containers along with their products rather than having to be in charge of recycling or cleaning and reusing them. Keep America Beautiful was founded that year and began working to thwart such legislation. Vermont lawmakers allowed the measure to lapse after four years, and the single-use container industry expanded unfettered for almost 20 years. How many of you remember the deposits on soda bottles and milk bottles and things like that. Um, you see people collecting aluminum beverage cans, you know, aluminum beer cans, soda cans, and my college fraternity actually had, we couldn't call them beer can recycling in our dorm, so we called them aluminum beverage container recycling, and we made enough money every year to go to a baseball game that included all our tickets and the bus ride to the stadium to watch a professional baseball game. That's how much we recycled. Now, Joe, I hope you didn't hear that since your son's going to college. Hopefully they don't have the, that recycling program. But it worked, and, and that was in the 80s, and we recycled all kinds of stuff. In 1971, Oregon reacted to a growing trash problem by becoming the first U.S. state to pass a bottle bill requiring a five-cent deposit on beverage containers that would be refunded upon the container's return. Bottle bills provide a strong incentive for container reuse and recycling, and the 10 states with bottle deposit laws have around 60% container recovery rates compared to 24% in states without them. Yet Keep America Beautiful and other industrial lobbying groups have publicly opposed or marketed against the bottle deposit legislation for decades as it threatens their bottom line. Between 1989 and 1994, the beverage industry spent $14 million to defeat the National Bottle Bill. That's very interesting. In fact, the greatest success of Keep America Beautiful has been to shift the onus of environmental responsibility onto the public while simultaneously becoming a trusted name in the environmental movement. The psychological misdirect has built public support for a legal framework that punishes individual litterers with hefty fines or jail time while imposing almost no responsibility on plastic manufacturers for the numerous environmental, economic, and health hazards imposed by their products. Now, this, this article goes on and on and on, and but the, the, the crux of it is that we need to make recycling easier for people so that they, that they will do it. And just think about your own household. How many of you recycle? Do you really recycle? Do you recycle your newspaper? Do you recycle your cardboard? Do you recycle your plastics? Do you recycle your metals? Okay. There's not much money in tin recycling anymore. If you try to go to like a recycling to a, a like a recyclable place where they'll give you money for it, 
you know, I see people doing this a lot. I take brass that I from the rifle range, and I get about a dollar forty a pound for it. Uh, Eric would have called these people the urban miners. You know, these are the guys that were stripping the houses of copper pipes. And that's the illegal way of doing it. But you at your house, you can do it legally. You know, do you have a place to save up all this tin, tin cans, you know, metal cans, aluminum cans? Do you have time to do that? If if it's easier to do, you will do it. And my community has tons of recycling stations where you can go and put everything in. There, there's a place where you can do your cardboard. Uh, it, it, it's actually a, an environmental uh, company that does it, and you can recycle. And it's multi. You can put paper in there. You can put cardboard. Uh, no, no trash, obviously. And, and it's very easy. There's lots of containers there. You have plastics. You have metals. You have cardboard. You have newspaper. It's the Isaac Walton League. That's the, uh, that's the organization that does it. So it's really cool. So that's enough about recycling. When we come back on the break for the final segment, we're going to talk about the rest of the week, and we're going to talk about trivia. Always a fun thing to do. And Ramon's bringing us back into Romeo Void. That's a great song back in the 80s. That's a college song. I spent many a night listening to that. It's awesome. So remember, 800-951-0592. Just to recap our special real quick, $5 Liberties at $340. Great fractional material. Hop on that. And we have rolls of silver buffalo rounds at $340 a roll. Great way to stack silver. Arlene's in the house today. Give her a call. Remember, it's so easy. All you have to do is say, I want the special. And she's going to say how many. You're going to tell her. And she's going to get your shipping information. You're going to figure out how you're going to pay for it. When we get good funds, it comes out to you in a... uh, safe uh, insured box track it's all good okay the only one i think that ever had a problem with was where it went to a place where there was a hurricane and i think the house washed away but it was it was in the in the post office in a safe so it's, it's all good so you can rest assured there you're going to get it and uh so we're all good there um now real quick i i want to just mention some stuff that i haven't gotten to today we need to talk about some current events okay so the Saudis apparently are now backing Tesla. Uh, the uh, CEO of Tesla yesterday said he was going to take his company private, possibly. Maybe that's through the backing of the Saudis. Um, I saw a a great video the other day about how much do millennials know about the First Amendment, and they were interviewing these kids at Columbia University, which you'd think people that go there would be smart, but these people can barely in complete sentences without using the word like 10,000 times or tie their shoes. I, I mean, it, it's terrible. And they would, I think the best one was three out of the five protections in the First Amendment. So if you think back, what are the five protections in the First Amendment? Well, freedom of speech, freedom of the press, freedom of assembly, freedom to petition your government for redress of grievances, and freedom of religion. Those are the five freedoms in the First Amendment. There's also five in the Fifth Amendment, and those are really hard. If they asked that question, they probably only only got, I plead the Fifth. That's probably all they would have been able to know, and they still probably wouldn't know what that meant. Okay? So, we are in serious trouble with some of the, and I I posted that up on my Facebook page, and I made a comment. My eighth graders learned this in week two, and it's all review for them anyway, and my eighth graders know this stuff, so it's beyond me. I, I don't understand what's going on it's, it's definitely the, the social media stuff that's burning their kids brains up it, it's got to be because 
They can tell you the Lakers score yesterday, but they can't tell you what the five protections in the First Amendment are. Unbelievable. All right, so I, I, wanna, I did some trivia the other day, uh, did this trivia game, and the, unfortunately they gave me a great topic, which was economic history. My daughter went and played last night and said it was a lot of fun, and they had some great quotes and some great uh, questions. And it, one of the questions was, where did the term cold, hard cash come from? Does anybody know that at home? Where did the term cold, hard cash come from? Well, that came out of the Depression. That's when people didn't trust banks. They would put their money in their freezer because if your house burns down, that's one of the last places it's going to burn. So that's where that comes from. Okay, so I, that was one of the questions. They, I knew it, and I answered it, so it was fun. Now, tomorrow, Joe's not going to be here. I'm going to be running the ship tomorrow again. Uh, we're going to be talking about the atom bomb and the historical significance of that. Um, you know, Hiroshima, Nagasaki, very current. Uh, the anniversaries right now of that. We're going to talk about how it happened, why it happened, um, the reaction to it, how it came about. So I've had fun being here with you today. Uh, I will be here tomorrow, your substitute teacher. Remember, 800 951 Jump on those specials, give Arlene a call, and I'll see you tomorrow.